So I don't know if you know this, but the St. Bernard dog is actually named for a monastery in Switzerland. I bet you can guess the name of the monastery, right? Um, so they were famous for those dogs, and they used them up in the Swiss Alps to rescue people who'd been trapped in avalanches. You've probably seen the cartoons where the, the uh, big St. Bernard with a little barrel of whiskey or whatever around his neck, and they would go, they would sniff out the people who'd been buried, and, and I suppose the whiskey was supposed to warm them up, but um, I don't know how that works. Uh, the monastery actually still exists, but some years ago, the monks announced they were no longer going to raise the dogs, which led to a furor. I mean, people were upset. How dare, how could, you're the St. Bernard Monastery. How can you stop raising the St. Bernard dogs? See, the, the times had changed, and they didn't need dogs to rescue people from avalanches. Now we've got snowmobiles. Now we've got radar and all sorts of uh, infrared detectors. A dog is, is obsolete for that. And so the only reason to keep the dogs around was for the tourists who would come and see them and for tradition. Tradition, right? I hope James edits that out. But uh, the monks found that they were spending so much time caring for the dogs because the dogs eat so much food and they need so much exercise, and they leave behind certain objects on the ground that are very large. Uh, the, the monks were spending so much time caring for the dogs, they weren't doing any of the things that monks are supposed to do, prayer and service and other things like that. So they, they found it felt like our full-time job is taking care of dogs, not serving the Lord. And again, people were upset with them for this. How can you, how can you possibly stop doing this? This is a tradition that goes back hundreds of years. And they said, they held the line. They held firm. They said, no, we're here to serve Christ. We're not here to raise dogs. In the same way, it's a temptation for every church to fall into that, that trap of doing good things, beneficial things, things that are intended to keep alive traditions that once had a very real purpose, right? You, you, in every church, you know of some group or some ministry or some tradition that is just beloved, and people say, well, why do we do that? No, new folks come in. Well, why do we do that? Well, you know, 30 years ago, we had 500 people that would come to that program. Or, you know, 50 years ago, we reached this group with that, with that particular ministry. Well, now... We're not doing those things anymore, but we're still continuing to do the program, or we're still continuing to do the, uh, the ministry. And you can, as churches, you can focus so much time on keeping alive the old tradition, you forget why you exist in the first place. And that's what I think this passage is about, is reminding us what we're here for. So just as a recap, we're in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. I, I, I guess I didn't say that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We, last week we read verses 1 through 10 that talks about the age to come. What is to come after this and how to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What an encouraging thought. And yet, Paul wrote, that's not actually our hope. Our hope is in the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of this world. And that's what we should be looking forward to. And that's what we should be hoping in and proclaiming to others. And it's all such good news to know that the future 
is bright for everyone who is in Christ. But he ends it with verse 10 where he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that leads to verse 11. This is where we pick up this week. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Remember, therefore always makes you call back to what you just read. Knowing the fear of the Lord, what he's saying is because we know someday we're going to stand before him in judgment, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say because we're going to have to stand before the Lord, we avoid sin. Or because we're going to stand before the Lord, we make sure and we're in church every Sunday. Now, are both of those things important? Yes. But Paul's point is, what's more important than avoiding sin, what's more important than fulfilling the rituals that we're called to do, is to persuade others. We're here for others. He says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So now he's saying, I don't know how you evaluate us, but I hope what you see in us is that we put persuading others of the truth of the gospel above all things. He says this in verse 12, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast in us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. I think what he's talking about there is false teachers who may come in and say, oh, you're still listening to Paul? Well, why don't you come to our particular gathering where this guy, he does all these signs and wonders and he's a spectacular preacher and and he's much more entertaining than old rotten old Paul, and he wants the Corinthians to be able to say, yes, but we know Paul's heart, and we know those who travel with him, and we know that they are about the gospel and nothing else. Verse 13 is kind of an interesting sentence. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. So I think that's his sort of humorous way of saying, if you evaluate us and think we're nuts, well, that's okay. We're fools for Christ. But if you evaluate us and think, oh, you're, you've got it together, Paul, and, and I, I consider you of sound mind, well, good, that's to your benefit. I, th- I think what he's saying is either way, we're doing this for you and for the Lord. And then verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Now hold on. He says Christ died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. I thought Jesus died so that we could all go to heaven. Well, yeah, that's the end game. That's the end goal is that God's people would be fully redeemed and and be with him in glory. But it's not as though Jesus died so that we can just be average folk and then wait for the resurrection. We're supposed to be different. Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. He he died not just to save us from hell, He died to save us from ourselves, from our own selfish selfish nature, and from going down that that path, that rabbit hole uh, of a life that is all about fulfilling me and making me look good. So as as we talk about keeping fixed on our purpose and not falling victim to that idea of just going about tradition and not doing what we're really here to do, the first part of it is, what's our motivation? What is our motivation? Is our motivation to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others? Is our motivation to bless ourselves and fulfill our own desires? Or is our motivation to persuade others of the truth of the gospel? That's what the answer should be. 
And as we just read, there, there are two reasons why, why we should be motivated that way. And one is the accountability that we're going to have to stand God before judgment, stand judgment before God someday. That is real. And it doesn't mean we can lose our salvation, but it does mean I think some of us are going to be very regretful on that day that we did not give more. So there's that accountability factor and there's the inspiration factor, his example, because the love of Christ controls us because he died. Therefore, we want to be unselfish. And when I think about that, I think about my parents and I think probably some of you would resonate with what I'm about to say. My parents, as I look back on it, I didn't feel this way growing up. I just thought it was their job. But as I look back on it now as a, as a you know, long adult and having almost finished raising my two kids, I'm amazed at the sacrifices my own parents made. I'm amazed at uh, the patience they showed. Again, when I was growing up, I didn't feel like they were all that patient. But now I look back and think, how, how did you put up with that? And some of the decisions they made and some of the ways they guided me, I look back at some of that wisdom and it's so inspiring to think back on the love that I received from my parents. And, and part of that for me is having seen that example so consistently day by day, how can I go out and live a self-centered, cruel, unthinking, unthoughtful, unhelpful life? And you magnify that by infinity and you've got Jesus. After what we've seen He's done for us, how can we be people who don't care that others are dying? and separated from God eternally. So, we pick up with verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, I was wrong about Jesus. We used, I used to regard Him according to the flesh. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And like most Pharisees, he looked at Jesus and thought, this guy could never be the Messiah. He's, he's poor. He's uneducated. He's, got, he's followed around by this sinful rabble instead of respectable, godly, righteous people. And, and then to top it all off, he was crucified. Well, God has cursed anybody who's nailed to a tree or is hung on a tree. So, you know, anybody, this is what stirred up Paul to such anger and rage was that anybody would proclaim such a person as Messiah was heresy. And he wanted them dead. Paul says, I used to regard Christ according to the flesh. But I was wrong. So essentially he's saying, I don't trust my judgment anymore when it comes to human beings. Therefore, when I see somebody, I don't think, oh, he's not worth anything. Oh, she's, she's no good. I realize I was wrong about Jesus. I can be wrong about them too. I'm going to let God judge them and not myself. You'll recognize this verse, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What a great promise that is for anyone who is ashamed of their past. And even, I, I think a lot of us in this room would probably testify something like me that you grew up in church and gave your heart to Christ when you were little and uh, you, know, you had your moments, but you've mostly stayed faithful. And yet even, even we look back on things that we're embarrassed of. Decisions we made, ways we acted, ways we thought, ways we treated others. And people who got saved late in life, in their adulthood, can probably point to things that they're deeply ashamed of. And, and in all those things, 
the Lord says, none of that matters anymore. None of that matters because you're a, you're a new person. It's a, it's a literal miracle. Um, you know, I'm working on this sermon series in Exodus. And what is the biggest miracle in the book of Exodus? The one everybody knows. The one that when you watch movies about Exodus, it's, it's where all the special effects are. The, the parting of the Red Sea, right? You know, the parting of the Red Sea in the New Testament is compared to baptism. It talk, talks about Paul, we're going to see it in a couple of chapters. In chapter 10, Paul talks about how we walked through the waters in the same way we were baptized into Christ. And, and his point is, the same way that was a miracle, the, the Jews, the Israelites were slaves on one side of the river and they walk across that dry ground and they're free. Free forever because they see their enemies dead in the water. And so when we're baptized, it's our way of saying, the greatest miracle God's ever worked in my life is He changed me into a new person. The old me is dead, behold, a new me is here. Through the waters of baptism, just like the waters of the Red Sea, there is a, a complete change of life. And, and therefore, therefore, we can rejoice in knowing that our past no longer matters. In fact, our sinful past can be a tool in the hands of God that He uses to glorify Himself. Uh, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But notice... Paul is not writing this as an encouragement to us to say, don't worry if you're a sinner, God's forgotten that you're a new person. Although that's true, that's not his point here. What is he saying? He's saying, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. What Paul is saying is, you people who are already saved, stop judging others. Stop judging people based on their past. Stop judging people based on their current flaws because Christ is in the process of redeeming them. Every, every human being has an invisible, every, every human being in Christ, that is, has an invisible sign around their neck that says, please be patient with me. I'm still under construction. Like when you walk into a, when you go to a hotel and it's under construction, you think, boy, what a dump. I can't believe I paid, you know, $150 a night for this place. Well, you're not really seeing the real place. And that's, that's true of us. That's true of us. We are, we're not who we really are yet. We're, we're in process. And I, I remember years and years ago um, when I was pastoring in a, in a small town, there was this man who came to me for help. Uh, and I, I had access. We had a community fund of ministers that we were able to dip into and help out people who came by. Uh, needing assistance, and I, I helped him. And then, unfortunately, at that church, the house was right next door to the church. I was in a parsonage. Freddie knows all about this. And so everybody in town knew where I lived. And so when this guy uh, was drunk one night and just wanted to come by and talk to me, he knew where to find me. And it was two or three in the morning, and he came and found me. And that's another long story about... Uh, that I've told in, on another time and will probably tell again because it's kind of funny, but I spent about an hour with him on my front porch and then finally saw him off. Well, then he came back again, two or three in the morning, about a week later, and this time I was not so kind. And uh, I, I had a man in my church who was a deputy sheriff and I said, I told him what had happened. And he said, what's this man's name? And I told him, and he said, let me check on that. 
And he came back to me and he said, yeah, I checked into it. And here's his words. He's no account. And I knew that. I mean, that's the way we talked where I grew up too. means he's worth nothing. And he said, I'll take care of it. And I never saw him again. I'm assuming my friend didn't kill him, but you know, probably gave him a ride to the edge of town and said, I don't want to see you around anymore. And I remember talking to my dad not long after that and telling him that story. And I thought he was going to say, boy, I sure am glad your friend helped you out and your, your family's safe. And I'm sure he, he was glad that my family was going to be safe. And I don't think I was wrong to be concerned about the safety of my family. But here's what my dad actually said. He said, isn't it terrible that we can sum up a human being with just, he's no account. And I thought, okay, dad, who's the preacher here? But he was right. He was right. And every once, whenever I think about that story, the man's name was Roy, and I don't, I never saw him again. I, I pray for him. I hope someone was able to share the gospel with him, because every single person is made in the image of God. Every single person is someone Christ died for. Every single person is someone His heart aches for and longs to redeem. And everyone is redeemable. So remember that. When you look at that person who annoys you to no end or that person who has wounded you in some way, we don't look at people through the eyes of the flesh anymore because anyone who comes to Christ is a new creation. Then verse 18, all this is from God, who through God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That He uses that word reconciliation or some variation of it several times in those two sentences. That's how He's describing salvation. Have you ever noticed how many different terms the Bible uses for salvation? Redemption and ransom and deliverance and rescue and salvation and and here, reconciliation, and there are many others you could name. But that idea of reconciliation is a unique way of looking at it. And here's one of the ways I picture it. Imagine you're working at a company and you find one day that you've made a huge mistake that's cost the company thousands of dollars. And you're just terrified. Terrified to go tell your boss what you've done. You know you're going to get fired. You hope that's all that happens. You hope they don't press charges on you. And you go and you tell the boss, you decide to do the honest thing instead of just getting in the car and running. And the boss sits there and looks at you a while and then he says, you know, don't worry about it. We can cover that. We like having you around. We're, we're glad you're an employee here. I know you didn't, you didn't do this on purpose and, and we'll just eat the cost of that mistake. Now, there's probably not many bosses in the world like that, but let's imagine that that happened. How grateful would you be? And that's, that's sort of a picture of what Christ has done because anybody who says, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross to redeem us? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins? You forget that whenever someone sins, someone pays for it. Just like in that company. If you lose thousands of dollars, the, the boss can say, oh, you're forgiven, you can just keep working here. But that means he eats the cost of your mistake. If someone steals your car, or let's, let's not put it into theft terms. Let's say you loan your car to somebody else. 
and they wrap it around a telephone pole. You can forgive them, but that means you're going to have to buy yourself a new car. To not forgive them means you say, you pay me back. You pay me the cost of that car, the blue book value of that car. Right? Somebody's got to pay. At the cross, Christ was paying the penalty that we owed for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. That's reconciliation. And so Paul describes us as ministers of reconciliation. So we get to go out and make reconciliation happen, which is an exciting thought. We've all been reconciled to God, and then God says, okay, now do this for others. And the the fun thing about it is, again, put yourself in that company. We get to go up to that person who made the big mistake and say, you're forgiven, you can continue working here, that's how much you're valued, and it's not even our money. We get to be the ones that share the good news. How exciting is that? That we get to say, you are forgiven, you are reconciled to the Father, there's nothing you have to do, there's nothing you can do, He has done it all. And so then he says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So now he brings in the term of ambassadors. And I know, you know, growing up, a lot of you who were boys were in royal ambassadors, right? You may not have even known why that term was used. But what I think of when I hear that term is a story I I read years ago. You remember when when Ronald Reagan was president, his secretary of state was a guy named George Shultz. You remember George? Anybody remember him? When I was a kid, you know, Ronald Reagan was president when I was, you know, teenager. And he always reminded me of that cartoon character, Droopy, you know, that little dog just kind of woke through. Anyway, that's what he looked like to me. Um, but I read this story some years ago that whenever the Reagan administration would nominate somebody to be an ambassador, they would have to go to the State Department and meet with George Shultz, and he would bring them into his office, and he had this big globe on his desk, and he'd stand up from his desk, and he'd say, come over here, I want you to show me where your country is. And inevitably, the new ambassador would point to the country they were stationed in, or they were going to be stationed in, whether it was you know, Argentina or uh, you know, Taiwan or wherever. And he would always say, no, 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 that's not right. And he would turn the globe to the United States and he'd say, that's your country. You're going to be stationed somewhere else. You're going to be living somewhere else. You're going to have to learn the language and learn the cuisine and learn the customs, but never forget, this is your country. This is who you represent. Which is a dream illustration for any preacher, right? I mean, that. I didn't even have to go to seminary to learn how to use that one. And we need to get it through our minds. As much as we love the United States of America, as much as we love Texas, as much as we love Montgomery County, as much as we love Conroe, we're only ambassadors here. This is not our true home. Our home is the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Our home is in heaven. We represent that world, that country. And as long as we remember that, that's going to help us live the right way. And that doesn't just mean we're different. Because any good ambassador learns to appreciate the culture of the country he's in. He doesn't keep himself apart and refuse to eat the local food. So we fit in here in certain ways. It's not about how we're different. It's about what Paul says. We're ambassadors, which means we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The question of whether we represent Jesus well or not comes down to 
do people hear from us? Everyone who knows this who's not a Christian, are they aware that there is a God who loves them, who sent His Son to die for them, and that we want them to know Him? We can't make them come to Christ, but are they aware that we want that to happen, that we're praying for that to happen? That's what it means to be a good ambassador. And then he closes out the chapter with, I think, one of the most miraculous verses in all the Bible and one of those that ought to just, you can just ponder for days. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's just, to me, one of the most beautiful statements of the gospel anywhere. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. When I, and during vacation Bible school, whenever uh, Kathy asks me to go share the gospel with fifth graders or fourth or third or whatever grade she assigns me to, I usually use the same illustration every year and hope that if they've heard it before, they've forgotten it. But what I say is, if you were in school and you knew you had an F and you were going to fail, and the smartest kid in the class came to you and said, hey, let's trade report cards. I'll go home and my parents will be mad at me, but it'll be okay. You go home and you take my A and, and, and you'll be fine. And I always say, would you do it? And, and usually kids will be like, no, because they think that's lying, right? And I say, no, 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 there's no consequences. That kid wants you to be safe. They want you to not get in trouble. And they'll say, yeah, I guess I'd do it. And then I'd say, would you be thankful? Would you really think that, that kid's a good kid to offer you that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's the best way I can picture it for a, a 9, 10, 11-year-old mind is you've made the mistakes, but he's paid the price. He's done the righteous work, and you get the rewards. And there's nothing fair about that, but he chose that. He chose that because he loved you. He chose that because he wanted to. He made him who knew no sin, the only person who ever lived who literally deserved heaven. The only person who ever lived that you could not find any fault with was instead made to take on the responsibility of everyone's sin. The Lord has laid upon him the, the transgressions of us all, according to Isaiah 53. And we get to make that trade. And so... We're found not just not guilty, we're found innocent. Because it says that we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you love that? It doesn't say so that we might escape hell, so that we might be forgiven. It says so that we might become the righteousness of God. That God, when He looks upon us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. And He doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, you're in the family, but I'm going to hold this against you. You're in, but if you ever slip up, I'm going to remind you of all your sins. No, he says, come on in. You've been redeemed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified, justified fully by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, do you get, the essence, you get the sense that to Paul, that's the greatest miracle that ever happened? That this was something he rejoiced in day after day after day? Remember, this is a man who persecuted the church. Go back to Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Can you imagine the terror that filled his heart at the moment he realized this work I've been doing so diligently and so violently has been literally against God. I've been killing His people. 
Can you imagine how terrified he was? Because the way he thought of God, you had to be perfect. And now to realize, not only have I missed the mark, I'm the worst of all. And so for him to realize, Jesus, this one I've been persecuting, his whole purpose was to redeem me and make me righteous. No wonder Paul wrote so eloquently and so voluminously of the grace of God. And we ought to rejoice in it too. Let's pray. Lord God, let us never forget our purpose. It is so easy to get sidetracked. There's a lot of good things that we do in churches, and things that are enjoyable and things that warm our hearts, but that don't fulfill our purpose. Help us, O oh Lord, to stick to the main thing, and that is uh, representing you in our community and proclaiming your grace. Help us never forget what's been done for us so that we would live in, in the inspiration and the accountability that you have died for our sins and that we will give an accounting to you someday. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.